Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Good morning, church family. Yeah, isn't it wonder to gather to get wonderful to gather together and to sing praises and to ponder our trust of God and to think about what we're tempted maybe to put our trust in and to build our foundation upon. Uh, just so wonderful to remind ourselves that there's only one foundation uh, that is worth building anything upon. Well, it's great to be with you today uh, as we continue to walk through our study in the Gospel of Mark. And so with that said, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to Mark chapter 8, where we'll be continuing our study today. We're going to read from uh, Mark 8, starting at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on, the, went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we approach it today, Lord, that we would be changed as a result of encountering and as a result of seeking you. Amen. Uh, so last week, for those of you who were with us, uh, Richard Queering uh, led us through the account of, of a miraculous healing of a blind man in the town of Bethsaida on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And today, our text starts off telling us where Jesus and the disciples went to next. Uh, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? So after leaving Bethsaida, the disciples traveled north to the area of Caesarea Philippi, right? You can see the north shore of Sea of Galilee. They traveled even further north up to Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is the northernmost point of Jesus' ministry in Israel. He doesn't travel any further north than this. And the city that he travels to is nestled on the southwestern slope of Mount Hermon, which, as we'll see next week, is the most likely location of Jesus' transfiguration. Now, uh, just for context, Mount Hermon is the northernmost tip of Israel and is Israel's highest elevation, standing at 9,232 feet above sea level, which, for context, would make it two times taller than the tallest mountain in Canada this side of the Rocky Mountains. So if you ever decided to go on a skiing or snowboarding trip in Israel, as one does, 
Mount Hermon is where you would go. Now, I I don't fully say that tongue-in-cheek. There is legitimately a pretty nice ski and snowboard resort on Mount Hermon in Israel. So if you ever wanted to check that out and say, I snowboarded in the Holy Land, you could make that happen. Now, this mountain range also provides the border for Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. And uh, both the mountain and the city, Caesarea Philippi, uh, under different names, appear frequently throughout the Old Testament as well. It's actually a fantastic, uh, like, fascinating study that we unfortunately don't have time for today, unfortunately, because our focus is on what happens on the way to Caesarea Philippi. As our text said, as they were traveling, Jesus asked the disciples two questions. The first question, which we just read in verse 27, is, who do people say I am? Jesus asked the disciples what people are saying about him, right? Who do they believe him to be? And the placement of this question is impeccable and likely intentional. As I said a couple weeks ago, chapter 8 is the midway point of the gospel, right? And, And not only is this the physical midway point of the gospel, but there's also a marked split here in the content, right? It's almost as if the gospel were a play written in two acts, with the first eight chapters having a theme and a thesis, and the final eight chapters emphasizing something a little bit different. And this question here, and the subsequent answers that we're going to see, are the turning point in the entire gospel as it moves from part one to part two. As we've emphasized along the way through these first eight chapters, the aim of the first half, the first act, is to answer this very question that Jesus asked. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? If you remember the very first message in Mark, the very first line of this entire gospel in Mark 1.1 says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Right? The gospel declares immediately who Jesus is, and then the following eight chapters serve to act as proof of this claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the very Son of God, as Jesus demonstrates his power and his authority over the natural world, the physical world, the spiritual world, and even the afterworld. Right? He can cure diseases, we read in the first eight chapters. He can restore the senses. He can cast out demons. He can multiply food. He can even bring people back from the dead, all while teaching with the incredible knowledge of God about the kingdom of God. And this question here in chapter 8 serves as kind of a benchmark or indicator of this. Jesus asks, are people connecting the dots? Do people see the significance of what I am doing? Have my words and my deeds convinced the people of who I am? To which the disciples offer three options or camps that that they're aware of that people are located in regarding this all-important question of who Jesus is. Verse 28, they replied, Some say John the Baptist Others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. So the first rumor that the disciples have heard is that some people think that Jesus is a resurrected John the Baptist. 
You know, the one who we read about early on in the gospel who preached the message of repentance out in the Galilean wilderness and was respected by many. Now, we've already read this opinion as King Herod uh, Antipas fearfully considered this very thing in Mark 6 after having killed John. Do you remember that? He killed John and he was afraid because he thought Jesus doing all of this work was John uh, back come back from the dead and he may come to get him. And apparently Herod was not alone in this belief as others thought this to be the case as well, that Jesus was simply a resurrected John the Baptist. Next, the disciples shared that there was a rumor out there that Jesus was the Old Testament prophet Elijah. That's what some people thought. Now, for those of you who may not be aware of who the prophet Elijah is, Elijah was an important prophet in Israel uh, in the ninth century before the Common Era. And besides the incredible things he did on earth, what makes him stand out uh, from the other prophets is that he never actually died. Right? He was taken straight up to heaven without ever tasting death. And this makes him very unique. 2 Kings 2, 11 to 12. As Elijah and Elisha were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. And that is the end of the story of Elijah in the Old Testament. So, so this, coupled with the words of another prophet, Malachi, who was writing much later, had the people of Israel waiting for Elijah's return. Uh, this is what Malachi says in, in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day that the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Right? The end times, according to Malachi, is, is signified by the coming of Elijah. Right? So, so waiting for Elijah's return, coupled with these miraculous deeds of Jesus that people are seeing, caused much speculation that Jesus was, in fact, the, the, return, the returned prophet Elijah that they had been waiting for. Now, the third option out there, uh, a word on the street, is that Jesus wasn't Elijah, nor was he John the Baptist, but was uh, certainly a prophet, right? He was another, a different kind of prophet, another prophet, right? People just couldn't dismiss his great teaching. They couldn't dismiss his mighty works, and so they believed that he was a prophet. He was a man that God was using in significant ways to speak on his behalf. Right, so those are the opinions that the disciples share with Jesus. So essentially they say, the, the people, they think you're special. right? They think that you're empowered by God, but they're not sure who you are. Right? There's really no consensus out there about you, Jesus. And Jesus wastes no time asking them his second or follow-up question. Verse 29. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Right? Who do you say I am? That's the second question. Now, it's so important for us to notice how different these questions are. Right? Who do people say I am and who do you say 
I am. Jesus turns this question around on them. He says, okay, sure, now I know what others have to say about me, but what do you think? What have my works and teachings that that you have witnessed firsthand done for your understanding of who I am? And this question, while literally and historically spoken to the disciples, is a question that is meant to jump off the page for all of us to answer as well. Right? The, the author invites us to consider this all-important question. Right? After these eight chapters, where we too have witnessed Jesus at work, where do we stand in our opinion of Jesus? Right? In the midway point of the gospel, it says, period, pause, what do you think? Who do you think about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? Right? If someone were to ask you, who is Jesus, what is it that you would say? Not what would people say, but what would you Say right. This is not a uh, what culture thinks about who Jesus is question. This is not a what what does your parents think. It's not what did you grow up with. It's not what does your spouse say about who Jesus is or what do your pastors say about who Jesus is. The question for all of us, in fact, the most important question for all of us is who do you say Jesus is. As C.S. Lewis contends with his familiar Lord, liar, lunatic argument, we all must decide who we believe Jesus to be. Right? And we really only have a few options available to us. Actually, in its most basic form, we have two. We have two options available to us about the question, who is Jesus? Jesus is either God or he is not. Right? He's either who the Bible claims him to be, or he is not. It's that simple. He is either, as Mark 1 says, and the first eight chapters attempt to show, the Messiah and Son of God, God himself in the flesh, the Savior of the world, and if so, he's worth giving everything to. Or he is not, and he doesn't deserve anything from us. Right? Those are the two options but one thing we know for certain is that there's no in-between. Right? Jesus is not, you know, he's, he's kind of God, a little bit, I guess. Right? Yeah, he's worth giving a little bit too. Yeah, I can handle one hour on a Sunday morning. No, if he's the Messiah, our Savior, he deserves everything. Right? There are significant implications to what we declare to be true to the way that we answer this very question. So church... Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? And what ought that to mean for your life if you really believe that? While we think about our answers, there's one who was ready to immediately declare his answer, namely the apostle Peter. Verse 29, Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Or depending on your translation, you are the Christ. Or you are the anointed one. Or perhaps in its most basic form that all of these translations are getting at, you are the king. 
And as I said before, this is the turning point of the entire gospel. Right? This is the moment in which the entire tone and purpose of the gospel changes. This is the climax of the whole book, the point that changes everything. And in, in fact, it's because of this very declaration that we have a gospel of Mark to study in the first place. Think about it. If Peter didn't connect these dots, if he didn't come to this conclusion that Jesus of Nazareth is God's son, he would not be writing a book to tell us that he is. Remember, well, John Mark uh, is the author of the gospel. He literally penned it. Peter is the source, right? This is Peter's account of the life of Christ. And here, he declares the very thesis of his own gospel. Remember Mark 1.1? The point of the entire gospel is that its readers would come to know Jesus as the Messiah. And here, in the middle of his account, we witness Peter personally coming to this realization himself. And it's upon this realization that everything changes in the gospel. Similarly to how everything in our lives ought to change when we come to this realization ourselves that Jesus is the Messiah, Christ the king. Well, upon Peter's declaration, Jesus responds. Verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Why? <laughs> which, which, yeah, Millie, you are right. Millie just said, why? Right? Why? That's exactly the question, right? That seems like a strange response. Why? Right? If we look closely, right, and, and here's maybe an attempt to answer this question, because it does leave us puzzled. If we look closely, we see that this is an acknowledgement from Jesus about the truth of what Peter has said. Okay, and we're going to get deeper into this why in a second, right? But Jesus, notice, he doesn't correct him, right? He doesn't deny it. In fact, he affirms this by telling them that they need to keep this fact quiet, Right? It's true, Jesus says, I am the Messiah, but not everyone is ready to know this just yet, right? And you're right, it seems frustrating, doesn't it? They know something, and, and not just any something, they know that God himself, the creator and sustainer of all things, is in their midst, he's right there, and they can't tell anyone, right? Why can't they tell the world? Isn't that the point? Well, I think it has to do with what's coming next. Look at verse 31 and 32. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Okay, what? Peter declares that Jesus is king, and in response, Jesus tells him that the king is going to die? Well, it's here that we see the second half of Mark's gospel begin. You see, the first eight chapters were the prerequisite. Understanding who Jesus is is essential to understand the second half of the gospel, which is what Jesus is going to do. Right? As we've already discussed... Mark is broken into two acts. Act one deals with who Jesus is, while act two describes what Jesus does. Tim Keller describes it this way. He says, Mark's account of Jesus' life is presented to us in two symmetrical acts. 
his identity as king over all things, chapters 1 to 8, and his purpose in dying on the cross, chapters 9 to 16. Mark Strauss says the same thing, just a little bit differently. He says, the first half of the gospel presents Jesus as the mighty Messiah and Son of God, 1-1 to 8-30. The second half develops the theme of his suffering role, 8-31 to 16-8. In these two acts, we have the essence of Mark's story. Though Jesus is indeed the mighty, the mighty Messiah and Son of God, his role is not to conquer the Romans. It is to suffer and die as a ransom payment for sins. The rest of the gospel plays out this theme. Right? Up, upon the profession of, of, of Peter, this confession of who Jesus is, and upon Jesus' realization that the disciples get it, that they understand his identity, he could now unveil for them what his purpose was. Right? Now that they knew that he was the Messiah, he could define for them what the Messiah came to do, just what it meant that Jesus was the Messiah. Sinclair Ferguson describes this shift, saying, only when they recognized his identity could they begin to struggle with the way in which their Lord intended to fulfill that identity, which is precisely why they needed to keep all this a secret. Do you remember Jesus' first question? Who do people say I am? Well, the people didn't know him to be the Messiah. Right? They thought he was a prophet of some sort. So they couldn't understand what was to come. They, they couldn't take the next course until they had mastered the intro. Right? They needed to understand Jesus' identity before they could begin to understand his purpose. You see, until people know Jesus' identity, they tend to be a hindrance to his purpose. Right? Until, until we know who Jesus is, we tend to get in the way of what he can do. Which I think is a, a powerful statement for us to ponder. Right? Is there a sense in which we become a hindrance to what God is doing because we don't fully understand who he is. For example, does our inability to see God as trustworthy hinder our ability to step out in faith when he calls us to? Or does our inability to internalize that God is forgiving, does, does it keep us from living in the freedom that he intends for us because we remain shackled by our past that God has actually released us from? Or, or do we unintentionally lead others towards sin because we misunderstand the meaning of God's love and acceptance? Right, Church, may we be a people who seek to know who God is first and foremost. Right? May we spend more time getting to know him, see, seeking to know him, his character, his attributes, than we do simply asking him for things from him. Right? Because we can only truly understand what he does as we comprehend who he is. Right? We can only understand what he does as we comprehend who he is. And here, the people don't know who he is, and so they will not be able to understand what he's doing. And it's not just the people. We're going to see Peter struggle with this in a moment. So Jesus begins the second half of the gospel by describing what his mission is, right? He says, yes, I am the king, 
but I'm not anything like the king you were expecting. And as verse 32 says, he begins to teach them plainly, right? He spoke plainly about this, which means that he was not speaking in parables, right? That's one of the things that Jesus does. He teaches things in parables, but here it says he wasn't speaking in parables. He spoke literally and plainly so they would understand what he was saying when he told them that he would need to be rejected and killed by the religious leaders and that he would rise again. This is not a parable that they needed to figure out. This was not a code they needed to crack. Jesus needed to be rejected, killed, and rise again. Now, have you ever thought that someone was ready for something and then realized pretty quickly that you were wrong about that? Anyone? Maybe throwing a ball to a small child and their arms are, you know, they just get hit with it or something? Has that ever happened before? Or, or you think your child's ready for solid food and you give it to them and they start to choke and you realize that you were wrong about that? Or uh, maybe you threw your hamster into the pool thinking they could swim only to see them sink down to the bottom? Um, or perhaps like my dad, you figured that your 15-year-old son would be able to drive a, a manual vehicle instinctively with virtually no instruction when you brought him out to drive for the very first time. And then realized uh, that maybe you expected too much as he sputtered through a left turn at a major intersection with oncoming traffic barreling towards you. You know, hypothetical situations like that. <laughs> well, in this case, Jesus finds out pretty quickly that although Peter had come to understand who he was, he, he may not have been prepared to fully understand what he had come to do just yet. Verse 32, Jesus spoke plainly about this, right? He told them, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter, the one who has just publicly declared that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is God, in his first act as one who understands, rebukes God, right? Way to go, Peter. Good start. Right? His enlightenment led him to challenge Jesus' plans. And, and this is not just a, a slight disagreement or, or a question. You know, Jesus, I, I, I don't know about this. Let's talk about it a little bit more. The, the word here used for rebuke is the same word that Jesus uses when he silences demons throughout the Gospels. Right? This is a very stern condemnation of what Jesus said would happen. In fact, Matthew's account of the same event gives some language to what Peter said. Matthew uh, 16, 12, Peter goes, Never, Lord, Peter said. This shall never happen to you. Right? This is, it's not, there's no wiggle room in there, right? This, Jesus, no, right? He's, he's screaming this, which just shows you, shows us that, that understanding who Jesus is is the start of understanding what he does, but it's not an automatic connection. Right? Peter gets it that Jesus is the Messiah, but he can't yet grasp what the Messiah must do. And I say the word must intentionally here. Did you notice the language in verse 31? It says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, what? Must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he, what? Must be killed and after three days rise again. See, Jesus is not simply saying that this is likely going to happen, right? He's not just saying, hey, look, there's some opposition forming. There's a, guys, there's a good chance that, that this is going to happen, right? They might kill me. 
Right? He's not just saying this is a possibility. He's saying that his rejection, his death, his resurrection is a necessity. Jesus must die and he must rise from the dead because that's precisely what he came to do. Now, we could spend hours just unpacking the why of this statement, right? Why was Jesus' death and resurrection necessary, right? And, and we will unpack this, many of the reasons as to why this is the case as our journey moves into Jerusalem and eventually to a cross at Calvary. But in the meantime, one resource that I recommend for exploring this question on your own is called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die by John Piper. And uh, this resource is a a pretty simple read, um, but here's a really cool thing. This resource has been made free, uh, made available for free at his website, desiringgod.org. So you can uh, go to his website, download this for free in whatever digital uh, format that you prefer. Right? So you can just Google 50 reasons Jesus came to die on your computer or device. Click the first link on your computer or the first unsponsored link on your, uh, on your cell phone and download a digital copy, uh, in, again, in the format of your choice, free of charge. All right? um, now, I want to get back to the text, but I do want, do want you to consider taking advantage of this offer. It's a simple read, but it unpacks 50 answers to the objection that Peter has regarding the necessity of Jesus' death and what is accomplished through it. And I would say, church, if we are well-versed in answering any question, this might be the one we need to be well-versed at. Why did Jesus die? What did it do? And what does that mean for us today? And here's a collection of 50 answers to that question. But for our purposes today, uh, let's just take Jesus' word for it, that at least one of these 50 reasons is legitimate, that his death is a must in order to fulfill his purpose as Messiah. And so he responds in kind to Peter's rebuke. Verse 33, when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have the mind, you do not have in, in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus rebukes Peter back, right? Telling him that he doesn't understand because he's seeing things through earthly lenses, right? He says, you do not have the, in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Well, I think we need to take it easy here on Peter for a minute, Right? Of course, strictly from a worldly mindset, the worst thing that could happen would be the death of Jesus, right? It's understandable that Peter, where he stands, would see it that way. In literally a moment, he goes from coming to the realization that this man is God to hearing that God is going to die. Of course, he isn't a fan of this plan. But as Jesus says, Peter isn't seeing things through the right lens. Through the lenses of God, Jesus must die. It's not a bad thing. It's not the worst thing. It ultimately will prove to be the best thing because the world can be saved through him. Now, church, how often do we find ourselves in situations like this? 
where we declare what we want, maybe even rebuke God for what he's doing or for what he's not doing or for what he's allowed in our lives, unaware of what God is doing in the bigger picture. Right? We need to be people who, who trust that he sees and knows much more than we do. And may we be people who have in mind the things of God rather than simply our human concerns. Now, regarding the name-calling here, it must not have felt very good for Peter to be called Satan by God himself, wouldn't you say? That might be the worst thing to ever, like the worst name-call ever, right? It's way worse than being called the Joker by Batman or the Wicked Witch by Dorothy and the Tin Man. It's even worse than Pastor Sean saying, I feel for you like I feel about Kadoba. Ouch. Right? Think about the worst thing you've ever been called. Multiply that by probably infinity, and we get a sense of how Peter is feeling in this moment. But what we see here is actually less about Peter and more about Jesus' reaction to the temptation to give in to the flesh. Right? We need to remember, as we read this, that Jesus was a man. Right? He was tempted just as we are, Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Right? Jesus was tempted. This was a part of his reality as it is with us. And so what Peter said, telling Jesus not to go through with his plan, struck a chord with the humanity in Jesus' flesh. I'm sure that it was something that crossed Jesus' mind often, not wanting to be rejected, not wanting to be tortured, not wanting to walk the lonely road to a brutal death, right? No one, Christ included, wants to endure that. But he knew that the greater good would come if he blocked out the temptations to renege on his promise and followed through on his mission to save the world through his death and resurrection. Right? And Jesus knew that temptation comes from the enemy. Right? He wasn't literally calling Peter the devil. Right? He, he knew that though the voice he heard was Peter's, the temptation in his heart was the work of Satan, trying to halt him from completing what he'd come to do. Right? This is the same language Jesus has used with Satan before, as Satan tempted him in the desert, Matthew 4, 8 to 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written... Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Away from me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus uses the same language as he stayed laser-focused on what he came to do. Now, did you notice the catalyst for Jesus' harsh response, for his emotional reaction that he must not even think about not following through? Verse 33. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. You see, in pondering this question along with Peter, do I, do I need to actually go through with this? Is this really worth it? It was seeing those he came to save that reminded him about the necessity of his death and resurrection. 
Jesus looked at his disciples. As he saw the faces of those he knew and loved, those who had no chance of saving themselves, those whose only hope was in the death and resurrection of Christ, whose only hope is if Jesus goes through with what he came to do, Jesus resolved to silence anything that would stand in the way of saving them and by extension saving us as well. I can't imagine how strong the temptation was for Jesus to pack it in, to save himself, to set the record straight, to avoid the rejection, the agony, the humiliation. Right? All I know is how quickly I pack it in when things get hard for things infinitely less difficult. But here's what we know. As strong as the temptation was, the love of Christ is stronger strong as the temptation was for Jesus, his love is even stronger. As Psalm 145, 8 says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. He is, this is what he is, slow to anger and rich in love. Ephesians 3, 17 to 19, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp How wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ? And to know that this love surpasses knowledge. The love of Christ is beyond our understanding. And that love led him to fight back when temptation came his way. This wouldn't be the last time Christ was tempted to pull the plug on the whole thing. But the love of Christ, whether the disciples understood it or not, would lead him to the cross where the king would be killed so that his subjects may have life in the kingdom that is not of this world. As we said earlier, last week, Richard led us through a unique healing A two-step miracle in which upon Jesus' first touch, a blind man began to see, but only in part, until Jesus touched him again, at which point he could see fully. Well, this is a great picture of what Peter and the disciples are experiencing here just days after witnessing the progressive recovery of sight for the blind man. Right Today, in, in this moment we're reading, They can declare that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is Lord. But they only see in part at the moment. Over the rest of their discipleship, their time with Jesus, he will give them eyes to see that to understand Jesus completely is to see him as Lord, but also to know Jesus as Savior, the one who died for sin, the the complete answer to Jesus' question, who do you say I am, will expand, it will grow as they spend more time with him, listening to his word, witnessing his mighty works, and receiving his death as payment for their sins, and his resurrection as an invitation to new life with him. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at grantmemorialchurch.com.